Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Continuing our fall series called Resolute, Tenacious Faith for Tumultuous Times. These are tumultuous times, but it helps to know this is nothing new, especially as you look across time and as you look across the globe today. The faith that God gives His people is a tenacious faith because it is so often given in tumultuous times. And so today we're going to be looking at the small, beleaguered church in the ancient city of Thessalonica. They had a tenacious faith. Listen to how Paul talks about them in his first letter to them. There's 1 Thessalonians and there's 2 Thessalonians. If you just flip the page over, you'll see his first letter to them. And you'll see how Paul talks about them in verse 4 of chapter 1. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So joyful, what we see in this description of the church is it's a joyful conviction in the midst of affliction. And I can't come up with a better definition of tenacious faith and what we're talking about over the course of these past three months with tenacious faith. It's a joyful conviction in the midst of affliction. All three of those words are applied to this church. And they were a An example, it says, to all of the world around them. And if that's true for them, then that could also be true for us. This morning, we're actually going to look at Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Because in this second letter, we actually discover that their tenacious faith is on shaky ground. And isn't that you today? I mean, maybe you can think of seasons in your life where you had joyful conviction in the midst of affliction, tenacious faith. But now you're on shaky ground. Well, the Apostle Paul speaks in to this, and he prays for this and for this church too. He prays what I think is one of uh, the best COVID-era prayers for our current moment that we can pray. And that we can pray this for ourselves, and we can pray this for those that we love. And so let me just read this passage of scripture. You can follow along. We'll pray and we'll dig in. This is the word of God. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself 
in God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, come. We need your empowering presence now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, my extended family all decided to go on a Disney cruise. Now, I think we can neatly divide people into two categories. There are cruise people and there are, we'll just say, non-cruise people. Um, At the time, I was totally undecided because I'd never been on one. But about two to three hours into our adventure, (laughs) I realized who I was. Like the Hogwarts sorting hat, uh, I was clearly a non-cruise person. Now, this isn't because it was boring and this wasn't because it wasn't fun or memorable. It was because primarily I was confined and I couldn't find my sea legs the entire time. Uh, For an entire week, I felt uneasy, and I felt unstable. And Dramamine, and then these little elastic bands with a ball on them that press into your wrist right here, those things were like a mockery to me. They didn't work. Well, that's how I kind of feel these days. I feel like I'm stuck on a ship, anchored a few hundred feet, tantalizingly uh, close to the shoreline. In fact, did you know, I just learned this, that The practice of quarantine itself began with ships in the 14th century. Ships coming from plague-infected areas would have to sit at anchor for 40 days. Because in Italian, quaranta giorni means 40 days. Some free trivia for you. Well, not only do I feel like I'm stuck on a ship, but I also haven't found my sea legs these days. I haven't adapted to the moving ground that's underneath me. I'm uneasy. I'm unstable. Every single morning I wake up and it's as if I'm trying to find my balance and I never quite get it. I don't know if you can relate to that. I wonder if you feel that way today, like standing on unstable ground, like standing on ground that's always shifting day in, day out. All that we thought was stable in our lives, our job, our finances, our health, Um, everything that we planned on, everything that we put together as architects feels like it's either blown up or it's slowly crumbling. Jason Isbell has a song called 24 Frames. In it, he sings, You thought God was an architect. Now you know. He's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow. And everything you've built, that's all for show, goes up in flames in 24 frames frames, everything that we thought was stable, everything that we have built up feels like it's falling apart. Well, the Thessalonians were in a similar place. We read how solid their faith was in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says they had joyful conviction in the midst of affliction, and they were an example to the communities around them. Well, fast forward a bit, and we come to Paul's second letter. How are they faring? How is their tenacious faith going? Well, honestly, it's touch and go. And we know this because of verse 15. 
Paul has to tell them in verse 15 to stand fast, to stand firm, and to hold fast. You don't tell someone to stand firm or hold fast unless they are on unstable ground. And if we read the rest of this letter before and after, we would know why they are on unstable ground. Because of external pressures and even internal pressures that they are experiencing. The external pressures, if you look at chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith, there's their tenacious faith, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. They're enduring affliction. They're enduring outside persecution for their trust in Jesus. It's putting them on shaky ground. And then they have internal pressures. So if you scan ahead to chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, so some kind of prophecy, or a letter seeming to be from us, so sort of a fake letter seeming to have the authority of the apostles. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come, the day of Jesus' return when he makes all things new, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Um, the, folks were saying that that had already occurred and it apparently was shaking up the believers of this church and alarming them. And he says in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. So deception is taking place. So apparently there were some influencers in this church with bad theology, who are really alarming and shaking up the believers. And so even though they're cause for alarm, even though their cause for, for being shaken up and on unstable ground is different, as I said, they were being told that Jesus had already come. These two words I would still use to describe our current status too. Alarmed and shaken. Our tenacious faith feels touch and go. So we come to our passage where Paul seeks to stabilize them. To give them, in other words, their sea legs. And he says in verse 15, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast. To what? To the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So Paul's urging them and he's urging us to be a steady Church, One that does not give up the faith when times get tough. Paul's saying when times get tough, a steady church stands firm and holds tight to the apostolic teaching over and against the falsehoods that are alarming us. And we stand fast in our faith to Jesus. That's a steady church. Now, how do we do this? How do we stand firm and how do we hold fast? How do we become a steady church? I'm afraid most sermons will stop right here at the command to simply hold fast and to stand firm. But that would be a huge mistake because Paul says hold fast and stand firm, not in your own strength, but on the basis of God and on the basis of God's strength. Just look at verse 15. This command to stand firm and to hold fast comes after two important words. So then, so then, 
do these things. So then means that something before this command is fueling this command, is enabling this command. Steadfastness, in other words, is a result of what comes before. It's the fruit of a deeper root. Paul spends one sentence on the command, on what we do, but an entire paragraph and a prayer on what God has done. And if we ignore what God has done, then we will burn out. We will burn out. We will say, yeah, stand firm. And then tomorrow we will fall. How do we be steady? We consider the work of God. We consider his work. And the way that Paul talks about the work of God in this small passage is chronological. It's past, present, and future. The Bible is not cyclical. The Bible is historical. It's chronological. It's a story that is heading somewhere. And so when Paul urges us to look at the work of God in this passage, it has a story shape to it, past, future, and present. And I want us to do that. If we're going to be a steady church, we need to consider the past work of God. We need to consider the, pre- the future promises of God. And then we need to consider what God is doing right now in front of us. And this passage shows us all three of those things. So to be steady, we need to consider first the past work of God, in particular how God chose you, how God called you, and how God loved you in Christ. So first consider that God chose you. To be steady on these in these days, you need to consider that God chose you. The way to stay standing on moving ground, is to go back in time. And I mean way back, way, way back, before the world was even made. Paul tells the struggling Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 4, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And to these beat-down Thessalonians, Paul rejoices and he gives thanks for them. Why? Because God chose them as the first fruits. To be saved. Verse 13 of chapter 2. We always give thanks to God because God chose you. They were the first fruits, he says, or the first believers in in, in this entire city of Thessalonica. And this is because God chose them before the world was even made. Now, some of you are squirming because you don't like this chosen language in the Bible. It feels arbitrary, and sometimes it feels even exclusive. But notice how Paul uses this doctrine. He uses it to comfort. God's truth, in other words, must be adorned and applied biblically. Biblical truth ought to be applied biblically as well. And there are three errors I've noticed, errors of application of God's election um, that I see come up over and over and over again. I just want to spend a few moments on this. The first is what I will call the pride error. We might think that God chose us because we are lovely. Uh, We imagine God like a team captain at recess, picking the best players for his team. 
And that will inevitably produce pride and a smugness. We are God's chosen and you aren't. But in the Bible, God seems to go out of his way to correct this way of thinking. So Deuteronomy, way back in the Old Testament, says this in chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept his oath. He swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. This statement and so many others are an ego deflator. Pride has no place when we consider God's election. God's election in Scripture is so often, I'm calling you, uh, not because you're impressive, I'm calling you to join in my mission to continue spreading the gospel. And so when we, ex- when we consider God's the choice, God's God's election of us, we ought to put our hands over our mouths in awe. When I was younger and I saw this theme in the Bible, my worship of God ignited. It exploded. I became small and God became big. That's the pride error. The philosophy error is the second thing that I see over and over again, maybe more so uh, than even the pride error. This is the philosophy error is when we try to figure out how God's election works out philosophically. Or if we don't try to figure it out, we spend endless debates with our friends or we're online or reading books. And all we're doing is we're trying to get down to the to the sort of logic of it philosophically. Now, there's nothing, I think, inherently wrong with pursuing this um, as an area of study, except when people get so hung up on it, they miss the point. They miss the point. I mean, how does Paul talk about election in this verse? And how does he talk about it in all of his verses? He never does it for debate. He never offers up, hey, let's talk about God's election for debate. He, no, he always puts this truth on the table. He pulls out this doctrine out of his toolbox when Christians are about to give up the faith. It's meant to comfort us and to encourage us not to become a philosophical puzzle to solve. And then the third error I see often is the passivity error. This is when we misuse this truth and become lazy. We become the frozen chosen. We, uh, we, we simply uh, use this truth to say, well, God is in charge, and so what do I have to do? But Paul obviously cherished election and yet endured beatings for the gospel, jailings for the gospel, shipwrecks for the gospel, and even eventual death itself. For the cause of sharing the gospel. Clearly this truth, when handled well and experienced in our depths, encourages an active faith, not a passive faith. And so we need to consider the call of God in our life. We also need, I'm sorry, that God chose us. We now need to consider that God called you. We need to consider that in eternity past, God chose us. And then we need to consider that in your personal story and in my personal story, that God uh, chose us but called us. He made sure that his eternal calling was manifested in the warp and wolf of our personal stories. Look at verse 14 where Paul says, 
To this he called you through our gospel. That is an amazing marriage of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is, in Paul's mind, the great evangelist. He's the one who chooses. He's the one who calls. But, but it came through our gospel, he said. Our gospel. What he means is that God is the great evangelist, and yet Paul is also a necessary evangelist. And that is a two-by-two sort of mystery that we need to keep together, a marriage that we must not pull apart. And so if you want stable ground these days, think back to your story. I would encourage you to think back to the person who shared Jesus with you. Or the moment, was it your, was it your parents? Was it a friend? Was it a pastor? Just think back on that and focus on that in this hard season. And that will grant you stability. And then finally, in the past, as we consider the past, we need to consider that God loved you in Christ. So look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. How did God love us in verse 16? Well, there's an eternal plan between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit to to love us, to love us, and, and, and to give us, as Paul says, eternal comfort and good hope through grace. In this, and Jesus Christ himself loved us, all three, Holy Trinity doing their part, God calling, Jesus executing, and the Spirit applying. I marvel to think that Jesus loved me 2,000 years before I was even born. And before that, way before that, God, I was loved in, by God in eternity past. And the Spirit applying all of that love and all of that work to me as an immature teenager. I marvel to think of that. And nothing, friends, will stabilize you more than pondering the past work of God on your behalf. I stole this, this dad hack from uh, a pastor I respect in Nashville. When he was a kid, he remembers the time and the place when he, where he was when his dad stopped him, looked him in the eyes, and said, Son, did you know that God loved you? And he set his love on you before the world was even made. And he remembers this because he felt so loved and cared for, not just by his earthly dad in that moment, which is true, but more so by his heavenly father. And so I've started to even say this to my boys as well. Friends, let's draw on the finished past work of God. It's done and dusted. There's nothing we can do. We don't get a vote. He did it. We dwell on this. And the more we settle in on this, the more solid ground we will have today. I want to talk about not just the past work of God in this passage, but the promised work of God in this passage. This is Paul's pastoral uh, strategy to this struggling church, and so it'll be my strategy too. Look back here, and then also consider the promises of God, the future of God. Consider, first of all, your future salvation. Notice in verse 13 that God chose us to be saved, it says. And that salvation comes through by the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that salvation is, in a sense, past tense. We are saved by what Jesus has done. 
We are saved by what God has done in the eternity past. And yet it is also future tense. Because the day when Jesus returns, we will be saved. And how can we know? Well, Paul says, the Spirit is at work in us until that day. And He will make sure it happens. And so consider your future salvation. Also consider your future glory. In verse 14, Paul says that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's writing to folks in Thessalonica who saw that word glory and attached to it the idea of honor. Uh, One scholar points out that Paul is writing to an honor-shame culture. And so Paul is saying to a group of Christians who have no honor and no glory because of their status as Christians, he's saying, you will obtain something better. Not honor in the eyes of your neighbors, but honor with Jesus. You will have the honor of being with Jesus, and you will have the glory of Jesus himself. Jesus is the prize. So consider your future glory. And then consider your future certainty. In verse 17, Paul says that God gave us eternal comfort and good hope. Those are future words. The comfort we have is not temporary, but eternal. And why? Because our hope, our hope is good. It's a good hope. This word is super watered down these days, isn't it? Uh, we, we say the word good and we think man. But Paul is saying that our future hope is as good as done. It's a certainty. It's a good hope. Our culture understands hope, I think, the way that the ancient Greeks did. Cynically. It's a wish that probably won't come true. It's like how many of us are probably thinking about this winter. We hoped that the spring in 2021 is way better than spring of 2020. But let's be honest, none of us are placing any bets on that. But the Christian hope is utterly different. It's a certainty. It's a good hope that Jesus will return. Jesus will make all things right. And we will obtain glory from him. So how do we obtain and how do we remain steadfast when the ground is moving under us? How do we stand firm? How do we hold fast? We do it by dwelling on the fact that our eternity past and our eternal future is done and dusted. God has acted decisively. And so consider that. Dwell in that. Rest in that. You are flanked behind you and before you by the finished and promised work of God. And when you do that, you can open your eyes to what God is doing today. Consider his present work. Number one, you have the truth. You have access to the truth. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, he says, saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. In our age of hyper-skepticism and doublespeak and lack of all kind of trust, this is an amazing gift. When we open our Bibles, we are encountering capital T truth. And so we should submit to its authority. This is God's word. God, King of all. His word, his authority, his truth. 
And in verse 15, Paul says there's such a thing as good traditions and bad traditions. He's saying, hold fast to the good traditions. And the way we, the way we stand firm is by rejecting the bad traditions. Um, and we hold fast to the good traditions. And how do we know they're good? Because Paul says they're passed down from the apostles who Jesus gave authority to. Which is to say for us, the scriptures. Let's ask God for a new hunger uh, for the scriptures and for the truth in the scriptures. Let's do the hard work of learning how to interpret the scriptures well. It's not an impossible exercise. In this day of skepticism, we can do the work of just of, 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 of honoring God's word and interpreting it well and applying it well. We can, we can hunger for that and thirst for that and grow in our capacity and our ability to do that. As confidence and truth is eroding around us culturally, Satan would love to diminish your hunger and thirst for truth, for God's truth. May it never be so. You have it in front of you today. Second of all, you have encouragement. Look at verse 17. Paul prays that we might have comfort. This word comfort is not just good vibes with God, but more like a powerful encouragement. Encouragement. Encourage. May God give you courage in you, in the core of who you are. He, he, Paul, in other words, is praying that these Christians would stay in the fight. Keep running in the race. Here's how one scholar defines the word. The encouragement or the paraklesin, which is the Greek word, is that which a person may have in the face of adversity. And so the word comfort, as it's translated in our text, was commonly used in military contexts to speak of the encouragement given to soldiers. Whenever I've run in a race, I've always run faster when I hear people saying my name and rooting me on. This happened last fall at the Columbus Marathon. Some of you were in the stands, actually. Um, well, it was two falls ago, I guess. And, and some of you were in the stands actually yelling my name. And I looked at you and I saw you encouraging me. You were, you were rooting me on. You were yelling. And listen, that's the word of comfort here that Paul's talking about. Not these like sort of like chill vibes. No, it's as if God is yelling your name. Stay in the race. And I guess what? I ran faster and I stayed in the race. A friend of mine who also ran competitively, he said that in track races, his strength always lagged on that second turn on the track. But then his speed always increased on the final stretch. Why? You would think the final stretch would be the slowest part of the race because of fatigue. But it's at the final stretch that there's the stands. And it's in the stands that are your friends and family. And it's your friends and family that say your name. And they say it loud and you hear it. If you've ever been to a swim meet, it's hilarious because parents are like, Yeah! 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 Why are they doing that? Because every so often, your ears are under the water. So they're only yelling when you hear it. And that's how God is with his people. He is encouraging you so that you hear it. And when we get that encouragement, when we receive it, we can press in to what God has for us today. What Paul calls the work and the words. Every good work and word that he has for us. Last week, we talked about... The works, the, the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk into. Our walk and our talk, 
our good work and our good words. May God today encourage you and give you the energy to stay in the race because you have good works and good words to say in this season. Not to earn God's love, but because you are deeply secure in his past work, his future work, and his present work today. So friends, how do we remain steadfast? We consider the past work, the future work of God, and yes, the present work of God. God is rooting for you. Do you hear his voice? Lord, we do pray that we would indeed hear your voice. We actually pray this prayer of Paul's. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort our hearts and establish our hearts in every good work and word. And we pray this. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.